In the beginning, God created everything, right? He created everything and he set up the earth as his cosmic temple, right? On the seventh day, he rested. Where did, where did God's rest? In temples, right? So then he made people, Adam and Eve, and he placed them in his garden to be his image bearers and caretakers of the earth with one simple task, to govern the earth on God's behalf, to govern the world on God's behalf. So he puts them in the garden, which is like his forward operations base, I guess you could say, right? If heaven is the command center, Eden is like forward operations, right? It's the outpost going into enemy territory, so to speak. Because in the beginning, it says the earth was formless and void, right? It's chaos. There was chaos covering the earth. It's interesting, right? You don't think about that much. Here is the earth. It's covered in chaos. God plants his outpost in the midst of the chaos, right? You follow me? So he's got his Ford Operations base with two representatives, Adam and Eve, from which his vision for the earth will go forward. But Adam and Eve thought it would be better to take the rule of this world into their own hands. Instead of listening to God, they chose instead to listen to the serpent and to themselves. And they ruined their opportunity to govern as God's representatives. Sorry, sound familiar so far, right? Everybody's following along. So, God banished them from Eden, sent them east, cast them into the world as we now know it. But, as usual, God is gracious. Just as he gave Adam and Eve a new opportunity after their tragedy in Eden, he continued to give all of their descendants more opportunities as time went on. More opportunities to make things right. So, along the way, God sent a flood. Right? God sent a flood to start over from scratch, start over fresh with Noah and his family. And sometime later, after the flood, Noah had a grandson. The grandson's name was Cush, right? He had many grandsons. But this one grandson he had, his name was Cush. And Cush had a son as well, several, and named his son Nimrod. The scripture says that Nimrod was a, was a great hunter, right? He was a great hunter before the Lord. So Nimrod was Noah's great, great grandson. Big difference, especially in Bible times, because like Noah was, what, 900 years old or some mess? And then here's Nimrod at, at only 132 or whatever. <laughs> so, about Nimrod, the scripture says this, the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon. Does that sound familiar? Babylon? We just talked a lot about Babylon in our last series. It's still there. Uruk, Akkad, Kalneh, and Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Resen, which is a great city. Cool? 
So it might be important to make note that Nimrod's name, I mean, that sounds like an insult, doesn't it, you Nimrod? Right? Well, I mean, it, like, it, it meant mighty hunter or whatever. Like, he was a mighty hunter, but now we're insulting people with it. Or not, maybe not anymore, maybe in the 90s, I don't know. So Nimrod actually comes from the Hebrew root word that means rebel. Right? Nimrod means rebellion. Interesting, right? So this brings us to the passage that Arnie read this morning. Okay? Genesis 11. People led by Nimrod decide uh, that they're going to build a tower that reaches to heaven. Cool. So we're still following me? All right. Their reason, verse 4. There it is. Their reason, this is why, so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth. Notice how this is a direct contradiction to the very mission that God gave Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. They say, no, we're going to sit right here. We're going to build up a tower. Remember, this is Nimrod. This is Noah's great-great-grandson. Why might they want to build up? Huh? What just happened two generations ago? Right? No, we don't want to do things your way, God. Still, we're going to fall prey to the same sin that Adam and Eve fell prey to. We want to be right here. We want to do things our way. We want to be in charge. Right? We want to build up, protect ourselves. All right. So, God saw this and decides, verse 6, that if humans can do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And so God decides in verse 7, come let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Follow me? So by the time you get to the story about Babel, what we know is this. It's being built by a violent and powerful warrior whose name is synonymous with rebellion. This guy is also building lots of other cities, right? They named them. We listed them all. So again, this, this babble, right? Babble on, same thing. We talked about it all last series, uh, how we're to resist the flow of the world is what Pastor Devin taught, right? In Revelation, the world is Babylon, representative of all of the world empires, if you will. So this is where that began, Right? This is where that began. Uh, the thing is, people back then didn't normally build towers, right? People, if something like this was built, you think about the Egyptians, right, uh, with the pyramids. How did that happen? Who built them? Slaves, right? People didn't build stuff like this. People were forced 
to build stuff like this, right? Enslaved people. So it's easy to imagine that Nimrod's empire as a place of oppression, a place that destroyed cultural diversity, a false and enforced unity. Nimrod was building an empire. Nimrod, like his ancestors Adam and Eve, was not satisfied with ruling under God as his representative. He wanted to be God himself. Right? So after Babel, God chose another way of establishing his rule in the world. He made a covenant with Abraham and then Abraham's children. Right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which became Israel. So Abraham and Israel, God gave the same assignment he had given to Adam and Eve, uh, which was to bless the nations, right? To fill the earth. Sometimes Abraham and and Israel did a good job. Sometimes they didn't. Uh, Then came Moses and Torah, but that didn't work very well either. Because just like their ancestors, Israel chose uh, to not be ruled by God, right? So God sent prophets to warn them that there was only one governor, only one true king, and only one God. One of those prophets named Isaiah reminded Israel of God's universal vision to bless the nations. In Isaiah 2, he says, In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it, for out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So out of Zion to the rest of the nations will go instruction and the word of the Lord. In Isaiah 66, he says, I am coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I shall... I will also take some of them as priests and as Levites, says the Lord. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So we see here, we get this glimpse of God's universal scope, right, of his mission to bless the nations. He wants to include all the peoples, right? Unlike Nimrod's empire building, the Tower of Babel, The people come as nations, with all of their diversity of language and culture intact, to worship. And some of them even get to become priests. The nations neither dissolve into one gigantic Israelite, nor do they isolate themselves completely. So here we are in our story. We're to the prophets now, right? Story's familiar, maybe a little different. So within a few centuries, Israel had seemingly forgotten her mission. Once again, Israel chose not to rule under God. Wanted to take matters into their own hands. So then for hundreds of years... God was silent. There was nothing. 
But then God began to enact this final plan that centered around his own self, really, around Jesus. And he broke into history with someone who was a descendant of Adam and Eve, but then also not a descendant of Adam and Eve, right? And this person would rule rightly under God as God's representative, like we were always intended to. Jesus came to do this. But we know how that ended, right? Easter was just two months ago, wasn't it? Yeah, about that. We know how that ended. Jesus uh, was murdered, right? We murdered him, all of us. We weren't there, but we murdered him, right? It was our sin that nailed him there. So, Nobody knew that Jesus was ushering in an alternative kingdom, an alternative nation. He was raised back to life to end the dominion of death and give Adam's descendants a whole new kind of society, a fresh start. We finally had the king we deserved, we needed. The kind that would rule rightly as God's representative. So after Jesus was murdered and he rose from the grave, he walked the earth with his new people, his new society, for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And just before he went into heaven, he left his disciples with, with this. In Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 4 and verse 8. He says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here he's promising them something before he leaves. Right? He's promised the Holy Spirit. This is not the first time he's mentioned the Holy Spirit, by the way. He's made mention of the Holy Spirit before. So then... After Jesus goes up, 10 days later, something amazing happened. Pentecost Sunday, the first Pentecost Sunday. Acts chapter 2 records this. In verses 1 through 4, we see, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Hold up. Why? Because it was Pentecost. So Pentecost is not just a Christian thing, right? It's a Jewish thing. What's the Jewish name of it? Feast of Weeks? Yeah? Feast of Weeks, right? So they're all gathered in Jerusalem. They're all scattered out, right? They all come back together into Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And that's when the Holy Spirit shows up, right? When they're all there together. And all of them living, scattered, they all have their own culture. They all have their own language. They all have their own ways of doing life. But they come back together to Jerusalem for this thing. 
So when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. That's in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun and said, They have had too much wine. Of course, Peter gets up and says, No, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's like, So? Uh, do what? So, that's the story of Pentecost, right? We just traced everything from creation up until when the Holy Spirit came. It's a fun story to relive. It refreshes your memory. Brings a new kind of, uh, I don't know, life into it. So, does this sound familiar, what we just read? Does it sound familiar at all? What's it sound like? All right. So the Apostle Peter stands up and reminds his fellow Israelites of a prophecy in the book of Joel. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17 to 21, he says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs of the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter says, hey, that thing that you've known about in the prophet Joel since forever, the thing that you've been waiting for, it just happened, right? It just happened right here in your midst. We're all here together. How convenient. That's so cool. So notice in this passage that the Holy Spirit gave without regard for status. Didn't matter if they were slave or free. Without regard to gender. Male or female, without regard to nationality, all people. In this giving, the Spirit unifies the people of God, but in a way that preserves their cultural diversity. You follow me? So in Pentecost, the first one, it's important to remember that each person hears in their own language, not in one common language, in their own language, not in some universal language, in their own language. Diversity is not reversed. Rather, each person hears in their native tongue, right? So unlike Nimrod's empire-building efforts, the Holy Spirit does not negate difference. The Holy Spirit does not negate diversity. 
The Holy Spirit cultivates diversity and leverages diversity in service of God's mission to all people. Yeah? I mean, amen. How cool is that? So at Pentecost, the divisions that we face that are caused by fear, by prejudice, all this stuff is overcome. Cultural diversity is affirmed. For God, diversity is not a problem. See, the diversity is the natural, the natural product, I guess, of a creative humanity filling the earth as we separate, right? God designed, I mean, look around the room. We all look different, right? That's one of the things I love about this church is how diverse we are, yeah? We all have different backgrounds. We have different races and classes and all kinds of stuff. That's what happens when people spread out. That's what science shows us anyway. That's what happens when people spread out. When a creative humanity that is designed to adapt spreads out, they change, and they take on new things. They, they invent new things. They create new things, new, new music, new culture, new languages. This is what people were designed to do, right? Fill the earth. Amen. So again, diversity is not a problem for God. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, is for all people, all nations. Not so each of these can turn into some generic humanity, but that they could express the human blessing and the mandate to Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. So that in the end, people from every tribe and nation and tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. This is what Pentecost is all about, right? This is the purpose of Pentecost. This is the birth of that new kind of society that Jesus was ushering in. This is the birth of the church. Do you see how our birth as a church, as a people, as a society, is tied directly to diversity? Not overcoming diversity, but enjoying diversity. Yeah? So Pentecost is this supernatural and redemptive reversal of Babel. You follow me? The church is anti-Babel. Yeah. So Paul, speaking of this great reversal, in Ephesians chapter 3, he says this in verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. A diverse church, unified in truth and in love, and that embraces their diversity, 
right? He's talking about, by the way, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I missed this part. He's talking about, in, in Ephesians 3, the mystery, right? This mystery that was made known to him, which is that the Gentiles were to be included, that this was not just for Jews. Again, there's a gathering here. It's the all nations thing. This is the mystery, and that this mystery is what shows forth his, what's it, what's it say? His, uh, his manifold wisdom, right? His multi-faced wisdom. His complex wisdom. This is what demonstrates it, is this church that's diverse but one. So the mission of the church, sorry, a diverse church in, unified in the truth and love is one of the most powerful displays of God's glory and God's wisdom to all of creation. In Acts chapter 10, pay attention to what Peter says here. You know what has happened, verse 38, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how, anoint, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Notice, not once, but twice, in these verses, Peter declares that Jesus accomplished his ministry through what? The power of the Holy Spirit. So every time Jesus heals a leper, every time he, uh, what, he, he broke boundaries you know, to, to break bread with tax collectors and invite prostitutes in, when he converted Peter, when he exercised demons, everything he did, he did empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that he promised to his people, to his disciples, to us, the same Spirit that showed up on Pentecost Sunday. He didn't do these things just because he was the Messiah or had some kind of special powers, although he was God. But because the Messiah, as God's, uh, God's Spirit was alive in him, Right? He did this all by the power of God's Holy Spirit. The thing is, the Holy Spirit that shows up on Pentecost Sunday is the key to church. It's the key to being church. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no church. There's no birthday of the church, right? There's no church without the Holy Spirit. So, It's the same spirit that empowers us to fulfill Jesus' great commission, which was what? To make disciples of all nations, right? So here we see it again. All people brought into the fold. It enables us to live holy lives, set apart uh, as we uh, work for the kingdom. It gives us a supernatural ability to reject our fallen tendencies, right? We still have this curse on us. It gives us this ability to reject these tendencies. And it, and it enables us to, to actually walk out the mandate that, that God gave Adam and Eve, to be God's co-governors under him, right? To rule as his representatives, 
So, John 17, verse 20. Jesus had been praying to God, of course, uh, for his disciples and then also for everyone else uh, because he was getting ready to, to depart, right? He was almost done. He says, my prayer is not for my disciples alone or for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you, that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So the mission of the church is to go into all of those nations, all of those languages that were separated at Babel, right? By the Spirit of Christ, humans are brought into unity by entering into this supernatural society that is the church, that was made possible by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit showing up. But the thing is, right, when we look around, as we walk out this Christian life, uh, we, don't, we don't see so much this glorious kingdom, right? What do we see? We see brokenness. We see hurt, pain, people that are wounded, uh, people just messed up, right? They're on a journey. Everybody's in their own place, in their own way. I mean, when you think about why, I mean, think about the church being anti-Babel and what Babel was doing, right? Oppressing, hurting, right? Egypt, Israel is in Egypt. What happened to Israel? They came out and God had to give them a rule book about how to be human again because they had been property for 400 years. How do we be, right? When you come out of that place, you're broken. And that's what we all are, right? We've been captured, redeemed out of that place. We have tensions and divisions, hassles, arguments, bickering. All this stuff happens outside the church. It also happens inside the church because we're not yet whole, right? Sometimes you wish you wouldn't. But it does. But the thing is, the big difference between us and our alternative society and our alternative kingdom that Jesus started and them is the Holy Spirit. Right? If we didn't have the Holy Spirit, there would be no hope of ever getting along. <laughs> There'd be no hope of, of ever getting anything done. The Holy Spirit transforms our inability to dwell with one another in a way that witnesses to God's grand vision, right? To bless the nations. To bring in the diverse under one umbrella, but to maintain their diversity. <laughs>